Let's, let's bow our hearts in prayer together. Father, we, um, we thank you for this time that we can set aside from our weeks, that we can come to you, not as a bunch of people who have it all figured out and are waiting for the rest of our town to get their act together, but as people who just genuinely need you. And, and we know that. And God, as we are singing, abide with me. I, who am I to say, Lord, would you abide with me? Who am I to say that? But God, that you would call us to abide with you. And that it's your good pleasure to abide with us. And you've done everything necessary to make relationship with you, our Father, possible. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you would that you would send your Son. That you would have mercy on us. That you would look on us with compassion. We praise you for that. We praise you, God, that you would see fit to love us. And I pray, Lord, that you would prevent us from taking your love for granted as though it's some small thing. Build us up through your word. Help us to walk with you. Help us to know you more fully. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know that gift, that, that one thing that as a kid it felt like all your friends had before you and you still wanted it even though you, know, you had other, you know, your friends would share. Well, I, with this case, I, was, I felt like I was the last one to get it. And it, was, it did not temper my excitement and I'm not sure how long I asked for one, but there was a period of time where it was the capstone of my gift desires for Christmas and birthdays. That this is the thing I wanted because this was the greatest thing a boy could have. And I don't remember the exact year it was, but one year I opened a box and I got this. The Swiss Army pocket knife. And, and it's a big deal. It has knives, it has screwdrivers, corkscrews, things I still don't know what they're for, but they're useful and they're awesome. And, and I, I knew that, man, there was nothing I couldn't accomplish with a Swiss Army pocket knife, and I learned it from my hero, this guy, MacGyver. And MacGyver heated things with a Swiss Army pocket knife that I'm pretty sure they had to rewrite physics textbooks for. I remember one episode, he took the, the corkscrew, screwed it into a board, and held onto it with one other person dangling. And I mean, you just can't find quality and craftsmanship like that anymore. And it, it had this little hook on it, and I don't know what you could hook with it, but it was good. It was a good hook. You couldn't fish with it. You couldn't like use it to zip line or anything, but it was, a, it was a good hook. And with a Swiss Army pocket knife in the right hands, 
There was nothing that was impossible. It was the perfect tool. It could accomplish anything. And I think it's that quest within the human heart to reach the impossible that drove things like the Swiss Army pocket knife. Like, we want to see the impossible happen. It's why we are completely enamored with the Olympics. It's why we can't get enough of jets and and land speed records and airspeed records and sending a select portion of our population to Mars, uh, which every election cycle, I'm like, it doesn't sound terrible. Um, But we... We want the impossible. It's why we remember, at least I do, vividly watching Usain Bolt run the 100-meter dash at the Beijing Olympics. And it was like he did it in under 10 seconds and that his legs should have fallen off. Like he shouldn't have hips or knees or anything anymore, but he does, and he'll do it again. And I want you to realize, you can go off of MacGyver now. We, as great as that is, we don't need it anymore. Um, as we, as we think of that impossibility, I want us to realize all of us in this room have two achievements of what would seem impossible laid out before us. We both have the potential to reach what would otherwise seem impossible. And the first impossibility we could reach is that apart from God, if we are not walking with God, there is nothing you're not capable of in terms of evil and rebellion and deceit. If you are not walking with God, you are capable of anything. You are capable of deep harm to people you deeply love when you are not walking with God. There's no sin that cannot be achieved by someone whose heart is hard hard to the Lord. The other impossibility is that while abiding in the love of God, there is nothing God is unable to change in your life. There is nothing in your heart that God cannot do through his love. There is, there is in your heart the ability for peace that is beyond understanding through the love of God. There is, you think of stories of people who you thought or they thought they were beyond the hope of salvation and now they are in the family of God. God is able to do the unimaginable He's able to give joy in a home that seems broken. He's able to help people find forgiveness and peace in their relationships. He's able to take us to places we never thought we'd go to accomplish things we never thought were possible. And here's the beauty of it, and here's what we need to remember. As we think of those two impossibilities, apart from God, there's no evil I'm not capable of, and in God's love, there's nothing he can't do in my life and through me. And you look at those two, and it seems like a fork in the road. Well, apart from God and in God's love, and we don't know which one to go to sometimes because we don't feel worthy of the one, of, of the second one, which is God's love. And I want you to know, God is crazy about you. God loves you more than you can imagine. He is Head over heels for you. And maybe you just need to write that down. God is crazy about me, and you need to look at it until you believe it. God is absolutely nuts for you. 
And, all, and for the last several weeks here in 1 John, we've been looking about God's love. We've been talking about God's love. And this morning, we're going to talk about the work of God's love and what God's love can do in us. And so let's read 1 John 4, starting in verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So, that, so we have come to know and to believe that the love of God, that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so we're going to be, through the outline, building a sentence a little bit. And the, the first part of that is the sureness of God's amazing love. The sureness of God's amazing love. And we, we have this in the first, first chunk. And, you know, in, in Paul, Paul, back in Philippians 3, he prays for the believers. Or in Ephesians 3, I'm sorry. Back in Ephesians 3, he prays for the believers. And this is the way he prays. He prays that they would have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. I'm praying you'll be strong enough to comprehend what is the length, the depth, the, the width, the breadth of God's love, of Christ's love for you. And so many times we talk about the love of God as though it's a small thing, as though it's a very common thing. And it is not small, and it is not common and I suppose that if we were to give the rest of our lives to only searching out the depths of God's love, we would run out of time before we were united with him in heaven. We wouldn't have enough time to do it. We wouldn't be able to read enough. We wouldn't be able to write enough. And John speaks as though we can be sure that God loves us, that we can know that God's amazing love is for us and with us. And here's, here's how he describes that. He says that by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And he goes on in verse 16, that God is love, whoever abides in love uh, abides in God and God abides in him. This idea that the most high God who sits enthroned, who has angels constantly singing his praises, who cannot tolerate sin, whom when I, Isaiah the prophet saw him said, woe is me, 
He didn't have this, what we would call a mountain high, mountaintop experience. He wasn't singing Hillsong songs. He wasn't, he wasn't waving his arms. He just fell on the ground, completely convinced he was going to die. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. That God, the same God as Isaiah saw, is the same God that wants to abide with you. Now here's, there's a lot of people in my life that I'll tell you in deepest sincerity, I love them. And I'll also tell you in deepest sincerity, I don't always want to spend a lot of time with them. And that, that's, hear me, that's as much a reflection on me as it is on them. God loves you and wants to be with you and wants you to be with him. He doesn't get tired of you. He's not like, ah, I've had enough time with that guy, I'm going to move on. He doesn't get annoyed with your quirkiness. He loves you. He wants to abide with you. He wants you to abide with him. The most high God, who is so far above us, who is holy, 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 wants to abide with you. His desire is for that. There are so many times where we feel alone, and in our loneliness, I hope, that we realize in those moments God is communing with you and wants to commune with you and wants you to be with him. He abides with us. And we have this communion table in front of us. And I hope that on Sundays when we have communion set before us, I hope that every song we sing, the prayers we pray, as the scripture's being preached, I hope you're viewing all of it through the lens of the cross. And I hope that we're already looking at this and, and thinking. That this morning as we've worshipped in song and prayer and fellowship and in giving at this moment and in, in his spending time in his word. Even in this time, we probably haven't had perfect thoughts and intentions. Maybe we've been worrying about other stuff. Maybe we've been critiquing people. Maybe we've been too harshly critiquing ourselves. And even while we've had Maybe they're little, maybe they're big, as we would think of them. Sins in our hearts, even in this last hour, last two hours of the morning. That God sent His Son so that you could abide with Him. So He abides with us is the first thing. The, the second thing is He gives us a promise that betters us. And that's His Holy Spirit. A promise that betters us. He has given us His Spirit. His, the Spirit of God is in believers. In Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, so it, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far, far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. When you come to salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. It's not a secondary thing. You receive the Holy Spirit of God. You are his temple for God's praise. God has given you his spirit. Scripture also tells us that, that God has given us the seal of the Holy Spirit. One of the best explanations I've heard of this, and this is to, for the promise that Christ is returning, it's like an engagement ring. A couple gets engaged. The guy puts a ring on the girl's finger, and it tells everyone, we're not married yet, but we're going to be. And the Holy Spirit is that ring where God says, my son hasn't come back yet, but he's going to. And to show you that my son is coming back for you, I'm going to put my spirit in your heart. Now, of all the couples you know who have gotten engaged, how many times the moment that ring went on the finger, like the girl like, was instantly like, more gifted at stuff? Like her, her heart was instantly better? She, you know, like she... Um, was a better servant. She had a deeper understanding of God's word. She knew more, not only her own sin, but God's forgiveness. The moment that ring on, she was like, oh, wow. Like, I have these gifts for mercy now I didn't have before. I have more love, joy, peace, peace patience, kindness in my life because of this ring. Like, no one. And the moment God gives you his Holy Spirit, his work starts and it continues and continues and continues until Christ. He gives you a promise that betters you, that conforms you into his likeness. And he's generous. And we have seen and testify the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Paul talks openly about the lavish riches of God's grace and mercy And the love of God in Jesus that he took on flesh, he lived, he taught, he served, and he died for us. And I, I, I think a little bit of the parable where Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a, a, a man who found a treasure in a field, sold everything he had, bought the field, and was happy because he had that treasure. And it's, it's the idea that when we understand God, we understand the kingdom of God, what it is to, to come into the family of God, that we would give everything joyfully to have that. But I think it's a, there's also an appropriateness to look at, look at that and realize that that's what God did for us. There's no cost that God withheld. God, didn't, God wasn't like, oh man, I need a people. Um, and I need people to worship me. I wonder what kind of deal I can get on Amazon. You know, I bet if I go to Craigslist, I can get some used people that are in pretty good condition that I can fix up a little bit. It, you know, it might be a sketchy deal in a grocery store parking lot, but this could work out. This could save me a lot of money if I get the right deal. No, he didn't do that. Instead, God set the price unattainably high, and he joyfully paid the price unattainably high. God spared no expense in purchasing your soul. He is generous. And this is how we know the sureness of God's love. This is how we know. When we experience God's love, we can, 
we can have the sureness that it's not just a, an idea. It's not a, a concept out there that philosophers debate about. There's a tangible quality to God's love because he gives us his spirit. He wants to abide with us as our father and he has sent his son to die for us. The whole trinity is involved in showing you God's love. We have a sureness of God's amazing love because of God's acts of love. We believe in the love that God has for us, which is shown in the sending of His Son to die on the cross. And the way we enter that love is by believing that promise. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. The moment you realize Jesus came in the flesh, but He had been eternally existent. He was, he's God's Son who came for me that Jesus is my Lord, that God raised him from the dead, God started abiding with you. So he ha- there's a sure love. And the more, as we come to know more and more what the love of God is in expression, effect, and grandeur, the rest of this passage naturally happens. The rest of what we're going to talk about, I believe, naturally happens as we experience the love of God. But thankfully, John, not wanting us to be unaware, explains it. And he explains that the sureness of God's love removes our fear. God's love can give you eternal security. There, and there's a peace with that, and there's a, there's a hope with that, and a joy with that. By this, verse 17, is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the, for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I've never cared much for the salvation calls that use fear as a primary motivator. I worked at a camp, and there's this guy, and I remember a campfire talk he was doing, and he like talking about hell, and he'd throw logs into the campfire so sparks would come up, and uh, he just had, I just remember sitting there, I was in high school, I'm like, this is the most bizarre thing, but I've, I've never been a fan of that. Because oftentimes, what we win people with is what we win them to. What we win people with is what we win them to. So if if somebody comes to Christ with the primary motivator being fear, and, and it works because hell is terrifying. The idea of eternity separated from God in a lake of fire is terrifying, and it should be. We'd be weird if we wanted that. But when, we, when someone gets saved only because they are so terrified of hell, a lot of times their salvation can easily be marked by an unhealthy fear of God. There's a healthy, reverent fear of God that Proverbs calls us to, that much of Scripture calls us to. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that we know who God is, we know who we are, we know the difference between those. That leads us to reverence. That's a healthy fear of God. The God is just waiting to smite me around every corner. He didn't actually want to save me, and he's waiting for an excuse to get out of the deal is an unhealthy fear of God. 
that God is angry and distant and doesn't really care that much for me, but he wrote the rules and I got in on a technicality. That is not the case. You were saved because the love of God is shown for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. And so we are saved by God's love. And so we, we don't have to worry like, oh man, but Tuesday was a really bad day. Oh man, I just lost it. And I don't think, your sin is not the one that makes God go, ah, dang it. I got to cut them loose now. They were, they were doing good until Tuesday. And, uh, you know, Wednesday was bad, but it was no Tuesday. God's perfect love gives us as sinners confidence before us. We are able to boldly approach the throne of grace. Paul in Romans 8, you did not receive a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. God didn't save you and make you some sort of low-handed servant in his house who does the, the least desirable jobs and better do them right before they get kicked out. God did not save you to that status. He saved you to the status of child. And so we can have confidence, not because of who we are, but because his love is perfect. Not our moral perfection, but the perfection of his love. So we have confidence on the day of judgment. The day of judgment's coming where Jesus is going to be on the throne. He's going to open the books. He's going to send a bunch of people to hell who denied him. And he's going to usher those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life into his kingdom. And we can go to that day with confidence because his pen does not have whiteout when he writes it in the Lamb's book of life. There's no eraser for it. It is permanent ink, and he writes your name because of his great love for you so that on the day of judgment you can have confidence. And God's perfect love gives us as sinners confidence before him. He's given us the spirit of adoption. Our confidence before him not only shows the perfection of his love to us, but to him that his love for us has been perfect because we are walking in confidence and it shows the perfection of his love to those around us. When a believer dies and at the funeral, their non-believing friends come and say, why is there peace at this time? Why are you not completely broken? Even in the, in the hardest funerals, the peace of Christ and the perfection of God's love can be communicated. Because we have confidence. So many times we face a problem and we stare at that problem and we develop a tunnel vision where all we can see is our problem. And when our problem is our sin and we stare at our sin and I'm so bad, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, we, we in that tunnel vision, don't see the love of God. And here's what it's like. It's like having a million dollars in your bank account, going to the grocery store, and freaking out because you don't think you can buy a gallon of milk. We pretend when we, when we live in fear, in that unhealthy fear of God, it is like being unbelievably rich and living like we're unbelievably poor. God's love is perfect. He has made you like himself. He has given you spiritual life in this world. 
And his perfect love casts out fear. It drives out fear. And we, I know some of us, sometimes I do, we struggle with this fear. And I want to counsel us with Psalm 23 really quickly here. In Psalm 23, we have, um, even though I walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But I want to go on to the next, next phrase where David, taking on the role of the sheep, says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Sheep will not eat if there's a wolf next to them because they're going to be in fear. And so how can a sheep eat with its enemy next to it? And there's two possibilities, and I think both are true for us. The one, one is the enemy is present, but the enemy lies on the ground thoroughly vanquished, completely defeated. I can eat in the presence of my enemy because my enemy has been so thoroughly defeated he no longer represents any threat to myself. God's perfect love has defeated Christ is victor over the grave, over death, over sin, over Satan himself. And the second way, the second possibility the sheep can eat in front of their enemy is because they're also in front of their shepherd. And their shepherd is so great that the enemy poses no real threat at all. And so we walk with our shepherd. We abide with our God. Our enemy lies on the ground vanquished. And even if it was alive and healthy, the presence of our shepherd makes the enemy look pretty pathetic so we can lower our head and eat in complete peace. And after that, David, in the role of the sheep, says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I used to think that as I walk with God, there's a wake behind me of goodness and mercy because I'm walking with God and it's like a wake of a boat. But that's not it. It's the heavenly hounds named goodness and mercy chasing me as a sheep of God to keep me in walk with him. And the good thing about them being heavenly hounds and me being sheep is sheep can never outrun the hound. And God's goodness and mercy are chasing you and keeping you with the shepherd. And so we don't need to fear that we can wander so far away because goodness and mercy will corral us and bring us back to the shepherd. And our fear can be removed because of God's perfect love. His love accomplishes this. Not our reasoning. Not our growing towards moral perfection. God's love accomplishes this. And the sureness of God's amazing love, it removes our fear and it leaves no room for hatred. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our love for each other is based on the same condition as God's love for us. It's undeserved and it's unconditional. And it's not an alliteration, but you can add that it's God-initiated. So our love for our brother, we, we don't wait in passivity for them to initiate love, but we look at them and say, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ, therefore I love you. 
It's not deserved. It's not based on condition. It's not predicated on anything. I love you. And there, we read this, and there's a warning that we cannot go to the point of hate because that means we don't love God. And there's a reality in it that it's impossible for God's children to have God's love and hate God's children. I think it is a logical impossibility for us to abide in God and look at a brother or sister in Christ with genuine hatred in our hearts. The two cannot coexist. And the reason why is earlier in the passage, we read God sent His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God will not allow for you to hate. He will confront you of your sin long before it gets to hatred. And the Holy Spirit of God will keep us in line with Jesus' goals. We have in 21, this commandment I have, whoever loves God must also love must love his brother. In John 17, Jesus prays his goals in terms of unity and, and love. And let's look at this passage. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So now he's praying for us, the, the spiritual descendants of the disciples, who have made disciples, who have made disciples. And then a lot of years later, along comes Westchester and other churches along with us, that they may be one What kind of oneness, Jesus? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So a complete unity with Jesus is what he's praying, that we would, our oneness would be the same as the oneness that Jesus and the Father have, and that it wouldn't just be the same as theirs, but it would be linked to them. That we would be one with each other as Jesus and the Father are one, and that we would be one with Jesus and the Father Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That their unity would testify that you have sent me, going on the glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. There it is again, he repeats it. I and them, you and me, so that they may become perfectly one, perfectly unified, so that the world may know you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Our unity shows that Jesus came and shows God's love for Jesus and God's love for us. Our unity, our love for one another, our lack of hatred says something to the world, that we are his disciples, God sent him. Look, some of us, me included, can be really hard to get along with. And sometimes your siblings in Christ remind you not so much of God's love, but more of your actual siblings and not in a good way. And we get angry. So be angry and do not sin. Deal with your anger. Deal with your frustration rightly. Bear with one another in love. Forgive one another. Confess your sin to one another that you may be healed. Unify, which takes hard work. But follow the Spirit of God that He's given you. Experience His love. Don't just think about His love. Experience God's love. Become well acquainted with God's love. Become well acquainted that He loved you first, that He saved you while you were a sinner. At the beginning, I talked about the Swiss Army pocket knife. 
my friends and I, we'd get together, because this is what cool kids did, and we'd all get out our Swiss Army pocket lives, and we'd compare tools. And I'd be like, well, that guy's, that guy has like the three-inch thick Swiss Army pocket knife, so he can conquer the world. I have like the one-inch thick, so I can just survive a couple days in the woods. And he has, and then they'd be like, oh, I got a saw. Oh, I have like tweezers and a toothpick that I'll never use and probably lost a week after getting the knife. And all we would do is look at each other's Swiss Army pocket knives, see who had a sharp blade, which blade was sharp, what they could do, and we'd never use them. The difference between us and MacGyver was that MacGyver used his. We never used it. We never took the time to figure out what half the stuff was actually for. Because that would require reading the directions, and we were guys. There's a big difference between saying God loves me and experiencing God's love. And if all we do is say, oh, oh, God loves, and we never experience it, we never experience having our sins forgiven, we never humble ourselves to be served by His people, we never really come to the cross and look at what has been done for us. Then these things, our our growth is stunted at best. And at worst, We talk a lot about God's love while never experiencing it, while never really coming to know Him, and never having our fear removed, never having hatred chased out of our heart. And we end up knowing a lot about God's love while never having experienced it. And so this morning, as we come to communion, as you are holding the elements in your hands, waiting for us to all partake together, I want you to hold hold the bread. And realize Jesus' body was broken for me. And as you drink the juice, realize Jesus did this. He came down so I can abide in God and God in me. And as you're doing this, realize that all the sins that I've confessed, Jesus did this so that my confession can lead to to forgiveness. And not a partial forgiveness, but a total forgiveness. And I can stand free of condemnation before my God. As those who are going to serve us communion come forward, let's bow our hearts in prayer. God, you love us. And our our language and our overuse of the word love hampers our understanding of the gravity that you Love us. You love us so much you would give us your spirit. You love us so much you would give us your son. And that you would allow us to be made more and more into your likeness. And that you would prepare a place for us. That you would treat us as children and and make us your children. Lord, we thank you for your love that you have for us, that you have been so generous with us, that you have spared no expense. And Lord, I pray that as we experience your love, we will be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.